0: Welcome or welcome back to the Uncomfortable Is Okay Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Desmond. This is a show where we try and figure out how to get better at doing the hard stuff that makes life exciting. Today on the show, I'm joined by Dr. Sarah Lieberman, who is a professor of leadership at Massey University. She has a particular focus on women in sport and women in academia. And Sarah... I first caught up with at a Sport Wellington event at the Westpac Stadium, talking about privilege, and she was gracious enough to accept the invitation to to come on the podcast. As well as being a Professor of Leadership at Massey University, she serves on numerous committees within the university. She has been a steering group member of the New Zealand Women in Leadership Program since its inception in 2006. She was a senior Fulbright Scholar um, who conducted research at the Tucker Centre for research on girls and women in sport at the University of Minnesota. In 2016, she was a finalist in the diversity category of the Westpac New Zealand Women of Influence Awards. She's been a member of the New Zealand Olympic Committee Women in Sport Group, has been the manager of the Women's Junior Black Sticks and Black Sticks teams has been a board member of Volleyball New Zealand and Western Netball and Hockey Manawa 2. And in 2017, she co-founded Women in Sport Aotearoa as an advocate for facilitating opportunities for girls and women in sport at all levels. So, she's pretty accomplished. Today, I'm having a chat with Sarah all about understanding our privilege and the position that we are and the, and the privileges that are associated with that, but also trying to, to understand how our privilege relates to other people's privilege as well and also how we can lead whilst trying to, to pull apart these, these different strands of, of privilege and, and what that means. I really hope you enjoy the conversation. I know I did. Uh, Thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with Sarah and I today. Dr. Sarah Lieberman, welcome to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. Thanks for joining me today.
1: Uh, Kia ora Chris, thank you very much for inviting me, really looking forward to our conversation today.
0: Fantastic and uh, I originally heard you speak at a a Sport Wellington event about six weeks ago and very much enjoyed it so I have been looking forward to this one for a a little while now. I always like to start things off with people um, to get a bit of context, so where were you born, where did you grow up?
1: So I was born in Cambridge in England and then when I was Three, we moved to Heidelberg in Germany for my father's work. And originally we were to be in Germany for three years, but we ended up staying there until I was 16. So I lived in Germany for 13 years in the late 60s through the 70s. And then my father's work took him to France, at which stage I had the option, so I was 16. Uh, The option of going to school in England or going to school in France, I chose England because my English was better than my French. We spoke English at home, but everything else was in German, so it was a little bit limited. So I I had what I would describe as kitchen English, so English for the house, but not really English for going to school, writing assignments, communicating with peers my own age. So yeah, that that was pretty challenging moving to a new country when you're 16 and you don't know anybody and
0: obviously your your parents were in france were you staying with other family members in england or were you boarding
1: no i i didn't want to board i i that was one of my parameters that if i went to school in england i didn't want to be at a boarding school i did not want to wear a uniform so they had to pick a school where i could go to into the sixth form and where i didn't have to board so i Lodged with a friend of my parents who was a, she would describe herself as a spinster um, who worked at the university. And so she went and did her day job and I went to school. And it worked out fine, you know, who knew? We didn't know whether we would get on or not, but it worked pretty well. She let me be independent, I did my stuff, and uh, it worked out really well.
0: Mm, I mean, it's got to be a reasonably challenging situation, especially. Uh, for, your, for your final year of school as well, after you'd built all of these relationships and, uh, and often that last year of school is kind of where the, the previous years of hard work often come to fruition with, uh, with being able to do cool, exciting things.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I think one of the biggest challenges for me was going into completely different systems. So in Germany, I'd been in a big co-ed school And in Germany, the system, which was actually introduced by the British after the war, uh, was very much predicated on participation, continuous assessment, 50% of your grade was contribution in class, to going to a system in England, which was an all girls school, where everybody apart from sixth form wore uniform, where you were examined with a three hour exam. And for the sixth form, which I went into, it was a two years, the lower six and the upper six, you're examined on two years work in a three hour exam at the end of two years. That's thing that counts. And then those grades determine which university, if that's what you're going to do, you're going to go to. So the, the, the change could not have been probably more stark than what it was.
0: Interesting. And I mean, do you, do you remember uh, how you dealt with that at the time? in terms of some of the strategies that you use going into that completely different environment with uh, probably much less support than you were used to?
1: I guess I was pretty independent anyway, eldest in my family and was involved in lots of things. So for me, the key one was, I resigned myself to the fact that this was happening, that I wasn't able to stay in Germany, which is what I wanted to do. So I made the best of the situation. And one of my key strategies was to get involved in sport because that's what I did in Germany. And when you play a sport, then you automatically connect with people that share a similar passion. So for me, I started off with hockey because hockey was where I played in Germany, but the hockey didn't last very long, mainly because in the UK, they at the time played hockey in the winter outside, whereas in Germany it was too cold to play hockey in the winter outside, so we played indoor hockey, and then in the summer you played outside, Well, I didn't much enjoy playing hockey in the freezing cold in England, so I decided to focus on my other sport, which was basketball, and so that's where I connected in with lots of uh, other people, and was able to meet people and connect with people, and then I also obviously got to know people inside my school uh, through the subjects that I chose, and... Uh, you know, so people that happen to be in your class, because the sixth form in England, you only do three subjects. And so you've got to pick them pretty carefully in terms of what you want to study. Uh, So that really was my, my, you know, at the time I didn't think through it like that, but when I look back, that's what I did and that's how I connected and I got involved in things. It's it's like, it is what it is, so you make the most of it and go with it.
0: Mm, Definitely. And how, how do you think those, looking back on them, how do you think those experiences have shaped the path that you're on today?
1: Well, I think one of the things that those experiences plus others have given me a really good skill set at adapting to new situations and going into new situations with a reasonable open mind and wanting to straight away try and build relationships with people so that I can connect on that personal level. I also think uh, sport has, in all of my moves and shifts, has been really important. So even when I then decided to come to New Zealand to do my master's in 1988, uh, when I turned up in Wellington, being involved and physically active and connecting with other people was critical for that. I knew nobody here in New Zealand. And I came out here to do my master's at Vic. And so quickly, again, through physical activity and sport and, and increasingly here, the outdoors, I connected with other people who you then get to know and you know go tramping with, go rock climbing, kayaking, which is a, a lot of what I did. I, I stopped the team sport at that time so that I could explore the country. Um, the other thing that I think it it ha- has enabled me to do is I have a real interest and passion around... I guess, tanga whenu, people of the land. And so when I arrived in, in Aotearoa, I was very keen to learn about Māori culture, to learn Māori what I, you know, what I could. And I find it's helpful to be able to speak language. So language is very important to me. So having been English and then growing up in Germany, I, I fluent in German and English, and I can speak French pretty well as well because my parents w- were, were in France for uh, 17 years. So language is important and so I I guess I've always tried to fit in with people and uh, I used to have a, when I was at university in in England, I I had a summer job in Switzerland on the campsite and I was in the German part of Switzerland and I tried to be able to pass as a local because I could, I picked up the Swiss German, the local dialect pretty quick. So it's trying to make sure you fit in. I guess it's a strategy, like a chameleon, you wanna be able to adapt, uh, but still keep my own sense of who I am and my own values and and passions alive and not 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 necessarily give those up.
0: Mm, and I think that's a really important point that you make, that um, I mean, we're, <laughs> as humans, we're, we're kind of evolutionarily hardwired to try and fit in uh, to the tribe or to the group. Um, And which is really important, but I think sometimes that can be detrimental as well. If we lose our sense of self within that and we're not kind of, we're not building self-awareness and, and curiously exploring uh, the things that we're interested in is that if we try and just kind of frame our interests only as those interests of the group, uh, that's that can often when we be, when we run into some trouble, um, from a probably the the wrong kind of discomfort I, I term it as not the not the strategic how hey, I want to get better at doing hard things, discomfort, but it's the actually I'm not being I'm not being true to to myself um, and I'm not looking to explore things and, and often I think that shows up in our bodies and in some kind of discomfort because we're not uh we we don't have that awareness so i think yeah that that point that you made there was was really important
1: yeah i think it's it's critical and it, but it is it can cause quite some tension so when i went to school in england so in germany as i mentioned we were encouraged to speak out we were encouraged to ask questions i went to school in england That certainly was not I I was called a revolutionary because I asked questions and I asked why we had to do something that made no sense. And even my friends by then said, oh Sarah, we don't ask questions like that, we just do what we're told. And that was really interesting for me because I'm like, why would you just do what you're told when you can see that there's a better way of doing this? And you're not you're not trying to be difficult for difficult sake or change something just for the sake of it. You're trying to make it better for everyone. And I guess I've never given up that part of me. So I will always question. It's got me in hot water a number of times. (laughs) I have a reputation for asking questions, but I'm not doing it to be, you know, a pain. I'm doing it because I can see that one, we need to ask the questions because we need to be clear why we're making this decision. But two, when we're trying to change things, we're trying to change it for the better, for the greater good. So it's, it's not about change for change's sake.
0: Mm, definitely. And, and I think that's really important as well. And obviously that's a, that's a, something that you use uh, externally in your external environment and in the relationships with other people. Do you also find that is helpful in... Uh, for internal dialogue as well, is when you are looking to uh, explore the reasons why you're going to do things or looking to, to change something within yourself, do you have that same approach to questioning?
1: I would say I've got better at it. Should we say that I've mellowed with age? <laughs> so my temperament is pretty much i go-getter, go do things and uh, the reflection generally comes afterwards so i have got better as i've got older at thinking through things uh, particularly before i open my mouth when i speak which i wasn't so good at when i was younger but now working out about how i might say something in a way that will not put others offside is still honest and with integrity conveys a message but it's delivered in a way that is going to foster conversation rather than close it down, shall we say? Mm. So it, it's been something I've had to learn.
0: Yeah. And I think that's uh, for, for most people that is, that's a massive learning process for them. It's, uh, it's not something that people usually start out with. And I think a, a lot of it comes from, from making, shall we say mistakes uh, and from the life experience of, of going and doing these things and then reflecting on it afterwards, I've never been able to find a way to kind of shortcut that experiential approach when you're, when you're, doing, uh, when you're building that skill. I'm not sure if, you, if you've come across a, a short or a, a quicker route to get to that point.
1: No, I haven't, because in the end, uh, well, for me, I'm very much a, I'm a doer. That's, mm. that's my go-to place. So I, I will see something, I'll think about I've got to do something, and then I try and do the doing. I will think about it, but I'll think about it in a pretty quick way. That's why I like working with people who are complete opposite to me, who are the people that want all the detailed information, think through every permutation before we make a decision. So uh, that's really helpful is to know that it can be a strength, but actually sometimes it's a weakness. So who else do you bring in your team to make sure that before you make particularly big decisions when you're responsible for others or you're, you know, you're the steward of an organization or part of an organization, then how do you make sure that, that you are mindful of all of those moving parts so that you don't, make a
0: decision that you then regret. Mm, yeah, and, and again, I think that people like like that often work really, really well. Uh, and the organizations that I see that do well have have both of those types within their leadership structure is that they have the, they've got the doers, but they've got the, the people who are very analytical as well. And they often re- work really, really well together, that one tempers the other. Um, and I guess, I mean, probably even in, in relationships as well, um, I'm probably more of a doer, and my wife is is a little bit more analytical as well. Um, so I think we temper each other quite nicely with, with that, um, as, as an example. I'm gonna, I, I wanna loop back around to, to the study that you did following high school. What did you What did you go and do your master's in?
1: Oh, uh, yeah, okay, so, well, before I did that, so I, I, I had my two years in the UK um, at high school, and then given that I'd worked very hard, actually, during that time, it was pretty difficult to move from doing things in German to doing things in English, I decided that I would apply to study geography, because geography is my favorite subject. I like the mix between numbers, people, it's sort of everything I like, different countries and cultures. So I decided to study, geography. so I applied to study geography at Cambridge University. So that um, is an extra exam that you take. So I took that extra exam and I was fortunate enough to, to get in to Cambridge University. So it involves not just your grades, you get in your A level, you have to do the extra exam and then they interview you. And so all of those parts together. So I had three years at Cambridge University and it was it was great, you know, it, it is everything you might expect it to be and more. It is, though, like a glass bubble because you have access to anything and everything you might need or want. And so, at the end of that three years, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I knew what I didn't want to do. I knew I didn't want to live in London. I knew I didn't want to have a job in the city. And going to Cambridge University, you basically the world's so your oyster, had all these recruitment people coming in and I wasn't interested. So I decided I'd do further study. And so I had an inter- so I applied to do further study to do my masters. I applied to Loughborough University, which is the top kind of sport university in the UK. I applied to Edinburgh University, one of the top universities in Scotland, to more in the resource management area. And then I found out about, and I still don't know how I found out about it because there was no internet then, about this Master's in Recreation Administration at Victoria University in Wellington here. And as it turned out, the person who ran that program was on sabbatical at Loughborough University when I went there for my interview. So I I turned up at Loughborough University, I got off the train and I decided that I couldn't spend 18 months there because the place just didn't light my fire. But I met with Alan Laidler, who was the person who ran the program. And he was uh, a graduate from Loughborough University, but he lived in New Zealand. And he, he gave me this interview, which was basically a conversation outside in the sun. And I basically went, wow, if everybody in New Zealand's like this, it sounds like a great place to go. Oh, I'll come to New Zealand. I did go up to, Scott, to Edinburgh and do the interview there, and they did offer me a place. But I decided I'd come to New Zealand. So I um, somehow and again, I can't remember how organized a student visa turned up here in, uh, in 1988 in January in Wellington, very different country to where it is now to do my master's at Vic. And Recreation Administration, because I was really interested in the outdoors, but I was also interested in conservation, my geography hat on and it enabled me to link both of those and the other thing that I liked about the program here is that we had the opportunity to do two internships. So you actually got to connect in with the industry. And so, and to help finance my time here, I applied to be a deputy warden at Warehouse, which is one of the student hostels, which I got. <clears throat> and so therefore I was able to live and eat for free in effect to for um, <clears throat> being a deputy warden and doing my study. And I had a fantastic 18 months and. I decided basically that I would come, that I wanted to emigrate to New Zealand, uh, largely predicated on my experience here, but the foundational the foundational pivoting point was I spent a week in uh Rua Tahuna at Matatua Marae. I went, I asked the social work because whether whether I could come on there no Marae, and they let me come and we spent a week there and that was that was pretty moving and powerful and I thought yep I really identify with Māori culture I really like how this fits within Aotearoa Uh, just kind of confirmed for me that's what I wanted to do so to leave I found a job in the UK working for the field studies council which basically takes groups of uh, school children out into the field to do geography so I enjoyed that really enjoyed that I really enjoyed the teenage groups, which nobody else wanted, but I loved having 14, 15, 16-year-olds to take out into the field. And all of that time, I was trying to get back to New Zealand. And again, don't quite know how it worked. we have been sending aerograms, I think. Uh, I managed to organise an interview here in New Zealand at Massey University at the Recreation Centre. And at the same time, they were starting an academic program in sport management. So they wanted me to help with that. And so I came out here with my backpack and $1,000, and... Needed to get that job, which I needless to say did, and so that's why I'm still here.
0: Fantastic, and yeah, I mean, look, looking back on it now, we're in the internet age where things are just at our fingertips, uh, it always it always kind of makes you wonder how did I how did I put in all of this extra effort to organise this stuff when uh, when things. so easy now um but i mean it's just what it's just what we had to do pre-internet so
1: correct you just you just did it because you knew no different right and so i think it really for me and i think it's very similar that i think now with a lot of my students or students that we have you know in in the days pre-internet if you wanted to connect with your lecturer you either turned up to see them You rang them, which you didn't do because it was expensive to ring, to make calls, or you wrote them a letter, right? Or you figured it out what you needed to do. What I do find often now happens is if you can't figure it out yourself quickly, then they email you and they go, I don't know how to do this, or where do I find this, or what do I do this, rather than trying to think it through and work it through themselves. So I do find it's a little bit... People are very quick to send emails, or to you know, even to colleagues. They're not going to go down the corridor to speak to them. They're going to send them an email. And I do find it quite interesting how that impacts the nature of relationships and how we make decisions to do things.
0: Mm, that is that is fascinating um, when you when you frame it like that. I mean, what this is a little bit of a rabbit hole, but what? Uh, what changes have you seen in, in terms of the nature of relationships based on email?
1: Well, this is my personal view. I don't have any, uh, don't have any research on it, uh, but my view is that with the advent, not just of the internet, but with social media in particular, people are very connected and so they you know, follow people's lives, you can find out virtually anything about anybody, but I'm not sure about the level and depth of relationships. And I still fundamentally believe that to build a really good relationship with someone, it has to start with a face-to-face being with them, physically present. So yes, we can do things via Zoom or via Skype and and they are great tools, but you do not get the depth of conversation unless you've already built the relationship beforehand. I also think you don't have those impromptu conversations that are not planned for because you have to make a Skype call or you have to set it up. It doesn't just happen spontaneously. So the being present, particularly in the leadership space, I think is is critical and I do worry that this is uh, being lost. And it's interesting, you should ask this question because I was doing a presentation yesterday for a conference that's on here at the university. And uh, one of the participants, we were talking about relatedness and the importance of that linked into social self-determination theory. And he was saying that apparently, uh, Hewlett-Packard, HP in the States, has gone away from enabling people to work at home. They actually will have to come in and work at hubs because what's happened is people don't feel that they're related anymore. They're working in their own little bubble and there might be an email and they might, but they don't actually feel like they really know, well, what does a Chris actually do? What does Chris family, you know, who are the people there? Um, and they've, they've really tried to change that. So I think it's interesting and, and I do worry when people don't walk down the corridor to talk to somebody, they send them an email instead, because email is so open to interpretation. And I think humans still crave human company and being able to have those conversations. And in Naotearoa Na in particular, where, uh, you know, kanohi ki te kanohi, the face-to-face pet is really important. Mm. I worry about how, what we're doing there.
0: Yeah, and I think we're I think we're living in a, a fascinating time actually uh in regards to the advent of social media and the start of the, the internet and the ability to connect with people that way. Uh and it's still really, really young. Uh and I I don't think it, it's a fantastic, fantastic tool that has and it's not gonna go away. Uh and I'm quite grateful for it because it allows me to connect with interesting people like yourself who are not in the same city as, as I am um, and have fascinating conversations. Uh, but I think, I think you're right that, that face to face conversation initially, which, which we had is really, really valuable because it allows you to on subsequent conversations to go deeper, faster with people. And I think it's a. Sorry. That, no, I was just going to say I think that it's a. Um, I mean, it's a process that we're going to have to figure out as a, as a society, as a world, is how do we use these tools, to have the benefit from them, but also to make sure that as as humans we need those those face-to-face relationships when we need that relatedness how do we how do we couple this tool with our inherent human needs for face-to-face contact and in relatedness
1: well I, I guess i for me it is that if we if we don't figure out how to create a sense of relatedness, belonging, and there's lots of different ways of talking about it. W- things I think between people will get worse. And my, my other thing is, is that when you're just seeing someone through a screen, I mean, at least you can see their body language. But when we do things in email or you do something on text, you don't get the body language. So you get words and you don't see what else goes with that. And I think we lose to some extent our ability to read people and to read whether they're genuine about what they're say- saying, whether they're hesitant, what they're thinking and that ability to read. Because we know from all the research that body language is what people see, 70% of it, right? So the words are only 10%. And so if we're only ever getting the 10%, then what about the other 90%? And that's the bit that I I see is potentially lost. And if we look at when there's a crisis, when there's a challenge, when people actually come together to do things, then it's all about people being together in a space. It's not often virtually, it's actually together. So I, I think there's a lot to do. And I agree with you. I think the internet and the things that you can do is fantastic. But again, it's about how you use it. And what you use it for and the way that you can get the most out of it and, and use it in a positive way
0: definitely and uh with that being said i'm just gonna i'm gonna switch my video back on and hopefully that internet holds up um no i, I really like that and that, that was a little bit of a rabbit hole that we've that we've gone down there um but i think it it, it makes for fascinating questions to start to, to ask ourselves if we're not thinking about that. Um, I want to, I want to look back around to some of the work that you're, that you're doing at the moment um, because one of the, or, or a few of the, the topics that you, you do a lot of thinking about, you do do a lot of research around and you have a leadership role are, are understanding privilege and, uh, and women in sport as well. So can you just take us on a, a, a brief journey from how you got into, into these different areas from when we left off last?
1: Yeah. So I guess what I realized pretty quickly, so one of the things moving from Germany to England was as soon as you hit England, there's a class system,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which in Germany, I basically non-existent. So what happened when I went to England was as soon as you opened your mouth, you said where you went to school, and then to university, you, you get put in a box. And that box is either you're rich and wealthy and well-to-do, or you're poor, or you're from here, there, or, there, or wherever. And I hated that, absolutely hated it. So to start off with, Well, I was German because I spoke English with a German accent. So I couldn't be put in one of the English boxes, but I was German. And I always have to say, well, actually, no, no, I'm not German. i am actually got a British passport, just like you have. I happen to speak English with a German accent because that's where I've lived for the last uh, 13 years. So that bit of being put into a box, I didn't like because I, I don't like being boxed. And then I guess that made me think about, okay, so if you get put in boxes and that it is to do with privilege, we automatically then think, oh, rich, wealthy, or go to Cambridge University, therefore this type of person. And I experienced that. I said I worked on a campsite in Switzerland during my university time. And I learned really, really quickly, never to say where I went to university. Because I did once. And people would, as soon as you said it, they go, go to Cambridge University, you could see them kind of moving back thinking why is she working on a campsite and the this man at the end of the week had been there with his family he said i've learned something from you this weekend like i oh, thinking you know maybe some german words or something like that and he goes i've learned that just because you go to cambridge university doesn't make you an arrogant rich person interesting right? So I thought, okay, I'm never going to say that that's racist, said And I still now will only say, you asked me what I did, I will say it. I never bring it out. I don't have any of my university certificates anywhere on any of my walls. I put it away because that's what happens is we have an image of what people are like when we say things or when we speak in a particular way. And then that pigeonholes us into a space. So leading on to privilege, right, also as a woman, I experienced that um, the college that I lived in at Cambridge, so the Cambridge is a collegiate system. So you live in a college, but your classes are all centralized. So wherever you live, you come together. So I lived in a women's college and the women's college didn't have a gym, a weights gym. And I was like, well, how come we don't have one of those? And they go, oh, well, we don't. And I said, well, we should get one. And I was saying, yeah, it's a bit odd. How come we don't have a gym? This is one of those things is like, oh, well, the men's have them. And and unfortunately, even today, if you look at girls and women's, girls and men's, girls and boys schools here. So if you look at boys' highs and girls' highs in general, the boys' highs, if they're public schools, will have way better facilities than the girls' highs. And why is that? That's because the old boys' network is really strong. And historically, they've had money that they can give back as alumni of the school to build nice swimming pools, nice uh, music halls, whatever it might be. Whereas women historically have not had that, whilst they have an alumni, it's not as strong. So what we've got is this imbalance has kind of grown. And and if we did an analysis of it, you, you would see it. So again, it's around that privilege, in that case, a gender privilege. So I guess I'm interested in that and I've always been interested in how do we support those who don't have a voice? And for me, that's really, really important. So I recognize that I am a white woman. I've had a really good education, middle class, never wanted for anything. And um, I think the other thing that's helped me really, in, I guess a social justice way is, is you know, my parents uh, grew up, were in England during the war. And so they grew up without a lot of things. And so that gets passed on at home in terms of what is important, how you do things. Also, my father is Jewish. So whilst his family was not directly affected by the Holocaust, because they were already out of Poland and Russia, historically, they left because of what, what they were being persecuted in those countries. So in me, I have, I guess, some genetics that would say, you need to fight for what is right, and you need to help those that don't have a voice and speak up and amplify because, Um, So for me, I focus in particularly around women and particularly in the sport uh, area because I'm interested in it, I'm passionate about it. And I myself have never really wanted or been discriminated against overtly. I have on reflection realised that I've been paid less in many of my jobs. And it's only in, you know, the last kind of more senior roles that I've gone for that I said, actually, I'm only going to do that job if I get paid what I should be getting paid but that was an uncomfortable conversation for me because like many women in particular, oh, it's a job, great. They'll pay me what I should be being paid because you don't know what everybody else is being paid. So you just take it. So I think, um, but uh, but I've never, I have never had any overt discrimination against me that I would say that makes me do this from a personal, but I've seen other girls and women discriminated against I see particularly women of colour, and for us, that's Māori, Pacifica, many of our immigrant women who don't have the same opportunities as us. And I really firmly believe that my role is to try and not speak for them, because I can't, I'm not them, but to help amplify their message. So one of the things that I'm really committed to is around the Treaty of Waitangi. It should not just be Māori who are speaking up for this it should be Pākehā, or for me uh, I'm an immigrant in this country uh, to we speaking up in this place so that it's not always them going you know have you thought about you te reo here or uh, here have you thought about what the tikanga should be are we having a pōwhiri or a mihīpaki what you know what are we doing and, and i try to speak into that space, so it's not, and that's why, again, it's really important that men advocate for women. So it's not only women advocating for women, because it's not not that we're trying to fix the women or we're trying to fix Mori. it's about we're trying to give everyone equity of opportunity to participate as fully as who they are in society. It's kind of the way I would encapsulate it. So for me, being mindful of that privilege is really important, and so often women forget that, white woman, that we have significant privilege.
0: Hmm. And I think, I mean, I mean, when you were talking about uh, being involved at, at Cambridge University and and how there was a that bubble there, is that it is easy to get wrapped up in your in your own bubble. Um, I mean, I'm a I'm a white middle class heterosexual male from New Zealand. I'm probably one of the most privileged people out there. Um, But sometimes it's easy to forget that because it is really normal for that. This is something that I have every day. uh, And I have opportunities afforded to me that other people don't, uh, that that don't have that chance. Or if they do have that chance, they have to work a whole lot harder to get that opportunity than, than I would have have to. And I'm quite interested uh, in hearing I mean you mentioned being mindful of the privilege is how can we how can we understand our own uh, the, our own privilege in the way that we're privileged a little bit better and and stay mindful of that in interactions with others and and with opportunities
1: Well for me it starts with self-awareness so we need to be aware of ourselves, just like in my view, we need to be mindful of what are our strengths and our weaknesses, how do we leverage those if we're building a team, how do we create that team to mediate, like we talked earlier, for the, the strengths and weaknesses that, that, that we have. And for me, it's about when I look around a, a room and I see diversity not reflected, and it doesn't matter which way around it is, then I will ask questions. So there, there, there is a lot that we need to make sure that we have women on interview panels. I ended up in a situation where we had a panel which was all women to make a senior university appointment. And I said, where's the man? There's no men on this panel. There was no Māori on the panel either. That was my other question. But I said, I'm not comfortable going ahead with this interview with yeah particularly because we were interviewing both men and women and i was like well we can't have it one way and not the other way and nobody had thought about that not even our hr department had thought about it in the end because it was a last minute thing so there would have been a man there but he was sick on the day the decision was made that we needed just to proceed but nobody had even thought about the question so i think it's also about the more you do this the more you see it Mm -hmm. so I will will look for that, I will look for for Māori to make sure that there is Māori voice, ideally when we have conversations. But I think increasingly, you know, when we make decisions that are important for particular stakeholders, so for us here in the university, we need to make sure we have students involved, right? So we need to make sure that, you know, I have significant privilege as a professor in a university, puts me in this hierarchy at the top here. So I have more voice and more privilege than a white woman who is a lecturer starting out in her academic career. So whilst we're both white women and we might have every other might be the same, in this structure, I have a lot of privilege. So I think it's something that you just learn to think about when you get to see it. And I I think that's part of um, continuous learning and being a learner rather than being learned i.e. having lots of knowledge. So mm. what are we trying to do and what do we do? And through, you know, you did the activity with the beads. I have my beads right here. I see them every day because when I did that activity, it reminds me of my privilege. And I don't know any quick way of doing this. Mm. And I think the other thing that's important to learn is, and I picked this up actually just at this conference I was at, So I was in a session, we was having this conversation, and it was my assumption, again, my my assumption here and my view of things. So in this group, there was a range of people, including uh, some African-American women, and they both, in their stories they were sharing, they had both come from backgrounds where there was no question that they were going to go to university and that they were going to get the best education possible. So the expectation was set at the beginning. So it wasn't that they hadn't had opportunity or the expectation wasn't there. It was that it was there. Sometimes when we look in from outside to another culture, things we hear about is only all the, the bad things and that you know generalize significantly here, but that, that African-Americans, particularly of an older age, will have not had these expectations put on them. It's different now. And these were, these were, these were women who are older than me. And so it was really interesting to hear that because I'm like, huh, hadn't really thought of it like that. So if they were in a conversation with other African-American women, they would have had privilege in that conversation compared to those who came from a background where education wasn't valued, where they didn't get opportunity to do things. So that's what I'm saying is just because you look the same, it would be same for, for you as a, white, heterosexual, male, not everybody will have had the same opportunities afforded to you. So once we unpack all those privileges around sexuality, class, religion, uh, those are kind of the big ones, ethnicity, race, there are variations within and it's being mindful of those.
0: Mm, And I think... The, the the point that you made about it being a learning process is, is really important as well, is that because it never it never stops. It's like I think it I relate it to like physical training, is that if you stop training, then you actually go backwards that you need to keep training to keep moving forward and keep uh, keep improving your skills. And very similar is once you start to pay attention then you get better at paying attention and you uh, develop your skills in, in noticing the privilege in, your, in yourself and, and also in, in other people as well.
1: I think the thing I find often is that there's a, there's many women who don't see that they're not reflected in certain things because they've never thought of it. So I, I, when I point out to sometimes to women, I'll go, that's a great poster, but you've only got men showing cycling here. They go, oh, yeah, you're right. I don't even see that. Don't even see it. Right? But now, once you ask the question once, they go, oh, yeah, we've got to be much more mindful of the messaging we send via our images. And I'm like, yeah, you do. Mm. But it, it's raising that awareness though.
0: It is, and I mean, the, the exercise that you did with us in the workshop was, was fascinating in terms of the, the beads. Is there, is there an online resource that people can uh, go in and look at to sort of start that process of being aware of their privilege?
1: Well, I think the best one, the, the, there's the video online. I, I don't have it right to hand, but there is a video, and I'm sure if you Google it and put kind of privilege America Uh, players on a line and so what they do is they start these students at the university they're all standing on the line at the back of a field and then they ask questions about whether they've done this done that done that or had this opportunity this opportunity opportunity and what you soon see is in this video is that the i think it's the african-american men are right at the back with the least privilege and the white heterosexual men are right at the front, and then there's divergence in between. And it's a very similar exercise, but without a a bead like I do, because the one that I have is from a workshop that I did. That's why I acknowledge where it came from. So I don't know if that is publicly available. I haven't searched it up. But those are just some examples of how to have a conversation about privilege. And I think starting conversations around privilege are more inclusive than having conversations, for example, around gender straight away. Because people often get really defensive about that. That's about men and women. But actually, if we talk about privilege, we all have different layers of privilege. And it isn't right or wrong, it just is. And mm. I think that's the other thing, is we can't, you know, I can't change where I was born, who my parents are, largely where I grew up. It is just how it is. But that doesn't make me a bad person or any, uh, it, it, better or worse than someone else who wasn't born into those circumstances. It is just how it is. But what we do need to do is we need to be mindful that not everybody had the opportunities that I have. And I, and I, and I well, well know that.
0: Mm. And I think framing it uh, from a, through a privilege lens, uh, actually, I mean, you, you mentioned the power of language before. If, if we're talking about privilege rather than kind of an us versus them mentality when you come at it from, a say, a gender or a race or sexuality perspective, is it loses a lot of the emotion? Yep. So if you take that emotion out of it, then often you can have much more productive conversations quite quickly.
1: Yeah. And for me, it's about if we recognize... First of all, that there is privilege, one. Then think about what our privilege is. And, and then if you re, if you recall, but for me, it's really important if we then move that to an organisational setting, whatever our setting is. So who are the people that are at the table? Are we only privileging those that look like us? Which is a whole discussion that we've been having for many years. That if we look around many board tables, there was just an item in the news earlier this week that, you know, Predominantly in many private sector New Zealand stock market companies, it is white men of a certain age, and they're probably, if we knew, probably heterosexual. Right. So where are where is the other diversity? And that's not just women, because as again I have stated, I'm really concerned that we will end up with white women of a certain age. And the other thing is, is you know, are these all the same people on these boards? I. Is it's quite a small club. So even if you get on that board as a woman or a man, then you happen to sit on three or four of them. So actually we're not reaching out to the wider diverse society that Aotearoa is. And how do we we have that and where do we bring, who says that young people can't contribute to a board? Who says that, right? Where is it the voice of the future in terms of making decisions for what's gonna affect them? But traditionally, we don't have many young people on boards. We don't have many people of color. And the research would show, irrespective of the social justice argument that we should include the diversity that society is in these decisions, that if you have gender diverse boards, it will make 15% of a difference to the bottom line on all measures. If you have diverse boards, including ethnic diversity, it makes 45% 45% difference to the bottom line. So diversity, including all the voices and having them at the table and enabling them to actually speak and be heard makes a massive difference to organizations.
0: Mm, yeah, and they're, they're really fascinating statistics that hopefully a lot of people are, and in a lot of corporations and, uh, and organizations are starting to, to be more aware of and to implement and I'm, I'm quite fascinated fascinated as, I, I think, people who are privileged have, along with, it's like that Spider-Man quote, with, with great power comes great responsibility, but with great privilege comes, comes great responsibility, is that the, the people who are privileged have a responsibility or an opportunity for responsibility to leverage that privilege to, as you say, amplify the, the messages and the voices of, of people who don't have the same privileges that we do. And how, how would someone in a privileged position go about trying to, to amplify the voice of people who don't have those privileges and, and help them get their message out there?
1: Well, I think it's a fine line as I mentioned earlier, it's really important not to speak for people and assume that you know their lived experience, because we don't, and I don't. So for me, it is about being genuine and having integrity and learning and speaking when it's appropriate to speak and seeking counsel, particularly in the cultural space. So, in terms of my learning, and it is only very small, but around Maori protocols and tikanga and when to speak and what to say, I I have some really good Maori friends who are skilled and experts in this area, and I seek their guidance. And I will ask whether it's okay to say this here. You know, is my um, pepeha going to be my and with it? Um, and so showing and knowing that they know that you are genuine, that you're just a pretender doing this because it's flavor of the month. So that's for me is really important. And like when I, when I did come back to Aotearoa, so when I started at Massey 1991, I joined the Kapahaka group here. I was the only Hakeha in the group. I knew none of the Waiata, knew nothing, but it was a good way for me to learn. To be in a learning environment where I had no idea what was happening, and that then shows people that you are genuine about it. You're not just pretending to learn some words and jumping in on. And so, I think you need to that to your thing about being uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to do that. And I remember when I went to the I think it must have been one of the early Te Matatini's. It was in Wellington when I was when I was studying in Wellington. I would have been one of very, very few non-Māori in that audience. So you walk in that's pretty different. And I think it's about being comfortable, putting yourself in uncomfortable positions and also being the learner. Because often we can assume that we know everything and making sure that, uh, that you speak when it's appropriate and when you've kind of figure that out after a while. So keeping your integrity is is critical through this. It's not it's not easy. And that's why, like, I find it difficult. I, I can't really speak on behalf, you know, like, amplify and assist for African American people. Well, it's a big group. I, I don't live in the States. I only have a very, very partial understanding of things. So being mindful of that, I guess.
0: Mm. Thank you for, for sharing your thoughts on, on that. And, um, I'm just mindful of the of the time as well, Sarah. Uh, and do you have another couple of minutes now?
1: Yeah, that's
0: good. Yeah. Cool. Um, so I think if we if we tie things tie things off here, I know there was some other stuff that we we mentioned, but uh, I think this is a pretty robust conversation already. Um, what was the what was the last uncomfortable thing that you did, and how did you get through it?
1: degrees of uncomfortableness. Uh, So if I take an easy one, uh, the last kind of physical uncomfortable one was, was uh, having a go at F45 with my daughter. Didn't really think my body would last the seven day free trial, but it did. And now I'm addicted. So uh, that was kind of a definitely worried about whether i would be able to manage it and whether all my various injuries that have accumulated over the years would be able to cope and i didn't want to look bad in front of other people and all that kind of social pressure thing so that that that's a an easy one but it it is about feeling uncomfortable giving something a go that that you're not sure you're going to manage i think um the last thing that i did that was probably is i asked some challenging questions in my last role about why things were being done in a certain way and suggested we might do things slightly differently. It was very uncomfortable. It didn't get uh, responded to very well. And I guess the long and short of it was that I needed to really look at where my line was around integrity to myself and doing what was right versus continuing on and what i was doing and the upshot was is that i decided that i couldn't carry on doing what i was doing and that i would maintain my integrity and be able to look myself in the mirror every day so that that was very uncomfortable
0: mm. um, and was it the was it the process of going through that that was uncomfortable or or was it the final decision to to step away from it that was uncomfortable. Or well, once you'd once you'd gone through that process, that last decision was easy?
1: It was really both. So the first, the the, the process of it was uncomfortable and difficult because um uh, I, I like to I like to support. I like to do the right thing. Um, I like to be seen as a good citizen. Those things are important to me, and so to have to question things that in my mind were pretty basic, and to other people's minds, pretty basic, but I was prepared to speak out for it. That was pretty difficult, and I I didn't feel comfortable with having not not having to do it. I understood why I needed to do it, but the fact that I had to was, was disappointing then the leaving then deciding to leave was was very difficult because I wasn't leaving the institution to go somewhere else I was staying mm. and that means you can't get away from those challenges and it also means that I have had to live with this year the outcomes of some of those decisions that I questioned that have caused more problems which which if where they had an environment where asking questions was all right, and had been listened to, we wouldn't have to deal with the outcomes of poor decisions being made.
0: Mm, that makes so sense.
1: That, that's pretty uncomfortable. So it was, and it's an uncomfortable space to be in, because yeah, institutions have pretty long memories.
0: Mm. Sarah, what's the next uncomfortable thing that you're going to do, and, and why is that uncomfortable for you?
1: Yeah, I saw that question, and that's a very good question because I, there's nothing really um, that I would classify as being uncomfortable. I would call it more, it's going to be new, challenging, unknown, don't know what it's going to be like. So I have been elected to council, which is the, it's like the board of a university. Uh, stood as the staff rep for that, uh, as the academic staff rep for that. So I've been elected to council, which starts next year. Now, I see that as a big responsibility. It's a four-year appointment. It's responsible for the governance of of the university. And um, I think it will be be challenging because all universities are going through challenging times. So there will be some difficult conversations to be had and it will be... um, uh, challenging to have that balance between, and and I would, it's it's how do I manage the stewardship part, the kaitiaki part of being a steward for the institution and having a voice for academic staff who've elected me for four years, uh, balancing that with a sense of respecting fellow council members and people who come to it. So the manaakitanga piece, how do I uplift others' mana while still being able to ask appropriate questions and challenging questions that need to be asked so that we make the best decision that we can under the circumstances. And then also still maintain the sense of Fanona uh, tanga, so as a family, as a collective, and the importance of the culture of the organisation and what we do. So I see this as quite, I think it's going to be challenging. Um, I'm not sure that I, it's not uncomfortable because I've chosen to do it, right? I've made a choice. I've put myself forward to be elected but it will be uncomfortable. I'm sure uh, at times and it will be um, what's an unknown. I don't know what it's going to be like, so I I don't know. So that's what I would say is my biggest one coming up.
0: Cool. And I I think the the best kind of discomfort for us to go through is, is the stuff that we've chosen for ourselves as well. And and being strategic about it um, because I mean that, that, that allows us to create the direction that we want to move in. And I mean, life has a, has a nice habit of throwing challenges at you uh, even when you're not looking for them. So uh, being able to choose the challenges uh, is, is is one of the themes of this podcast. Sarah, I mean, we've, we've talked a little bit around some of this already, but do you have any other strategies that you use to approach uncomfortable situations?
1: I make sure that I'm in good health. I make sure I look after myself. I think if I can bring my best self to the situation, that helps me because it means I've got a, a clear head. It means I, I'm i in a good space. For me, it's really important to have enough sleep, to have exercise, to eat well. Then I make better decisions. If I'm in an uncomfortable, difficult position and I'm tired, uh, that's, that's not a good combination. So I do actively look after myself and manage that and the other thing is is i make sure i have really good relationships with people so i have a close close close-knit friend group who and a very supportive family so my husband and daughter we're a tight-knit group and i I always have that to go back to so for me I, i i i can balance that out so looking after myself being in myself enables me to deal really well with uncomfortable situations. I guess because I'm in a good space to do so.
0: Mm, I really appreciate that answer, actually, and it's not one that people usually throw up, but I, I think it's one that is is vitally important. Um, I've got a couple of other quick questions for you, but I just want to say okay. thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me today. And but also thank you for uh, the, the work that you do helping people understand privilege and uh, address privilege disparities, as well as amplifying people uh, people's messages as well, um, among a lot of other things. Uh, I, I, it's really important work and I, and I appreciate that. Um, first question is if people are interested in, the stuff that you do and uh, want to learn a little bit more about it or, or contact you to to be pointed in the direction of some interesting ideas, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Just contact me via my my Massey email. So it's on the Massey website. So if you just uh, Google Sarah Lieberman at Massey University, it'll come up and just send me an email. That's the best way to go
0: cool um sarah do you have a challenge to leave me and the listeners with this week
1: yeah i think my challenge to everyone is well. there's kind of two parts to it mm-hmm. so the first one is think about what it is and what practices enable you to be your best self what might that be is it around sleep is it around exercise is it around nutrition is it around friendship? What is it that makes you be your best self, one? And then think about where is it that you wish to be making a difference? Where is your passion and your space that you would like to be making a difference? Whatever that might be. So those would be my two challenges for people to Mm. think about.
0: Thank you for those. And thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with me today.
1: That's all right. Thank you very much, Chris, for inviting me and uh, enjoy the best of your day, rest of your day.
0: Thank you. There you have it, team. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sarah. It's pretty interesting starting to try and understand your own privilege and the position that that puts you in and how that relates to to your life and how it progresses. And privilege is, it's not anything to be ashamed of as well, that if you are in a privileged position, you shouldn't feel shame because of it. I mean, I was, I was born a, a white middle class heterosexual male in New Zealand, which automatically puts me in a very, very privileged position um, compared to a lot of other people. Uh, but I think for everyone, we have a responsibility as to how we go about using our privilege and um, how we deploy that to make the world around us a, a better place. Um, so have a think about the ways in which you're privileged and how you can how you can deploy that to, to make the world just a, a happier, healthier place. Before we tie things off, I know it's coming up towards the end of the year. Uh, I usually do a little bit of coaching with people in terms of taking on challenges, picking areas to get strategically uncomfortable and reducing overwhelm at the same time as building mental fitness and building resilience. And I thought in December and January what I'd like to do is I'd like to just kind of open up some some complimentary coaching sessions for people, just a, a one-on-one, one session with me, just to, to have a bit of a think about what 2020 is going to bring for you just to sit down and see the direction to to challenge yourself in 2020. So if that sounds like something that you might be interested in uh, flick me an email chris at chrisdesmond.nz uh, and we can tee up a time to have a chat. Thank you as always to Jylan for your awesome editing skills. Thanks to my brother Jeremy Desmond for the amazing theme music and thank you to you guys for taking the time to listen in to sarah and i today it's been an absolute privilege to have you all listen thanks for getting uncomfortable with us this week